0: Some time ago a young man was sent to me In my office and as we talked he said I need some help I need some help uh, with my Christian life I need God to be more than just What happens on Sunday morning in church Can you help me As we continued talking I said to him Can you please tell me where Jesus Christ fits into your experience He said his reply startled me He said I don't know you tell me So here was a guy who had given his life to Christ As it were But with absolutely no clue at all as to where Christ fit in. That's no reflection on him. It may be a reflection on those who helped him that far in the journey. But some of you may be here this morning who in various stages of your pilgrimage with God have heard people use phrases like commit your life to Christ and give your life to Jesus and believe in him. What does that mean? Obviously this guy had no clue at all. So what I want to do this morning as we finish this little three part series I want to answer that question. What does it mean to give your life to Christ? Or to put it in somewhat different words for those of you who have been tracking with us the last two Sundays as well. How does one respond to what you've heard the last two Sunday mornings? Some of you may be here only for today. I would encourage you if at all possible to take a copy of the tapes of the previous two weeks messages. They really form a unit as, uh, together. How does one respond to appropriate this good news in Jesus Christ? that alone is sufficient to counter the bad news we've learned so far And the bad news is that because of our fundamental attitude of in- independence of God we are marked by sin in our lives and that the law trying to live good lives is not going to be sufficient because God is infinitely holy what's the go- how do we appropriate the good news of Christ in this situation now one way or another the New Testament says that we need to believe that the answer is not works but faith believe in Christ Have faith in Christ, trust in Him. But what does it mean to believe? Now you might say, anybody who knows English should know what that is. Not so obvious. One man put it this way. He said, we are surrounded by unconverted people who think they do believe in Jesus. Drunks on the streets say they believe. Unmarried couples sleeping together say they believe. Elderly people who haven't sought worship or fellowship for 40 years say they believe. All kinds of lukewarm, world-loving church attenders say they believe. The world abounds with millions of unconverted people who say they believe in Jesus. And the young man in my office had given his life to Jesus without knowing anything about Jesus. So obviously this matter of believing is a little bit more complex than just believe. This is why some of the earliest leaders in the church many, many centuries ago, known as the church fathers, took time to hammer out very carefully in what the church calls its creedal statements or the creeds what exactly about Jesus we are to believe in order to appropriate this life that I want to talk about this morning. And one of the creeds that you may have even heard of, it is called the Nicene Creed. And I want to take you through the Nicene Creed and use it as a platform to answer this question, what does belief in Jesus really mean? First of all, it begins by saying, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father, before all worlds. That's the first phrase I want to stop at. That underlines for us that Jesus Christ didn't begin to exist on that first Christmas Sunday, Christmas day when he became a baby. That was when God in incarnate human form began his human existence. But Jesus existed before he ever came into this world. He was pre-existent, eternally existent with the Father. That's the first thing about Jesus that is important to believe. And then it goes on to say, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. That's an old English way of saying, truly God, truly God. And then this verse, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father. What is the importance of the distinction between begotten and being made? Well, you've seen four parents dedicate their children to the Lord. If they are artistic or they have artistic relatives, they will make images of those children. Beautiful photographs or paintings. And if some of them are gifted in sculpture, they can even make sculptures of their children. They will all bear some resemblance or likeness to the child, but will not be the same as the child. Because they are all created. But the child that they offered to God right now, carries within him or her the genetic pool and the information. In their father and their mother. That's the difference between being begetting something and making. You make of a different kind, but you beget of the same kind of the same substance. And so when it says Jesus was begotten, not made, that underlines for us the fact that he wasn't just the first of all of creation. He wasn't just the supreme in all creation. He was of the same substance as the father, uncreated, eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. Of exactly the same substance as the Father. And so it underlines the deity of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, by whom all things were made. He himself was not created, he was the agent of all creation. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. And was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary and was made man. That emphasizes the humanity of Christ. That was this Jesus, very God, begotten, not created. Who took upon himself human form. And he became fully man. All of the heretical doctrines of the church. Came about because of moving one side or the other of this balance. Either of saying that he was God but not man. Or man but not God. Or diminishing one without the other. Whereas the creeds say. He was fully God and fully man all the time. Of course it's a mystery. It's a mystery of the incarnation. And then it goes on to say. He was crucified also for us. That talks about the fact that he died for us and he suffered for us. We learned that last week. That because of our sin before an infinitely holy God, all of the relative human goodness is is no value at all before God's infinite holiness. And that it is only through the death of Christ on the cross, he died the death that you and I deserve. That the wrath of God is appeased and therefore the love of God can flow to us while still not compromising the holiness of God. That's all buried in this. For our salvation was crucified, suffered and was buried. But notice this phrase, under Pontius Pilate. Why is that thrown in there? That sockets all of this into an actual historical space-time slot within our life. You will often see documentaries about Jesus. The most recent one by Frank Reynolds of ABC, I think, some time ago. And one of the customary distinctions they will make is between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. The idea behind that is that this historical Jesus was, maybe he was a great uh, guy, maybe he was a great teacher, maybe he was a real revolutionary, but poor, deluded disciples afterwards foisted all kinds of supernatural attributes to him because of their own need to worship something and out of that came the Christ of faith. Well, under Pontius Pilate tells us, no, there is no distinction between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. The Jesus of history is the Christ of faith. He is very God, a very God who also became man for us. And then it says on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ we learned last week was the guarantee that we have that Christ's death on the cross was indeed sufficient to pay the price for your sin and my sin. That which we could not do, he did. Something which our own good works can never do. Because our good works, we learned last week, only appear good when we compare themselves with somebody who is worse than us. Then he goes on, to, oh by the way, also because he rose again, it's possible to speak about such things like a personal relationship with Christ. You can't have a personal relationship with Napoleon, he's dead. But you can have a personal relationship with Christ because He's living. Then it goes on to say, he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. Now this is not some accommodation to some poor medieval view of the world which sees hell down below earth here and heaven up there and somebody imagining two chairs up there floating in Netherlands and somebody on one side of the other. That's not what he's talking about at all. These are powerful metaphorical expressions to drive home the fact that this Jesus who died and who rose again is now supreme and sovereign Lord of the universe. That's what sitting at the right hand of the Father means. It's not a geographical thing. Jesus is not the best. Jesus is not the greatest. Jesus is the only. He is absolute supreme and sovereign Lord. That's the meaning behind that. And then it says, he shall come again with glory. The first time he came, he came not with glory. He came as a baby. He came to the poorest of the poor families. He came to an insignificant little fishing village. 2,000 years ago in Palestine. When Rome was absolute and sovereign Lord. Even then he managed to shake up the whole empire. But next time. Next time he is coming in visible splendor and majesty. When there will be no question of his glory. And guess what? Every knee will bow Every tongue will confess. That's why one of the songs we are so fond of singing here is, Come, now is the time to worship. One day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess. But the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose him now. That day everybody would come. And then he comes with glory to judge both the quick, which is an old word for living. Both the living and the dead, and whose kingdom shall have no end. It is an everlasting kingdom that he comes to establish. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. And if we believe this about Jesus, then, then, the life that he promises becomes ours. And so for the rest of this morning, I want to focus on the last little part. What happens? What happens when we believe in Jesus this way? In one sentence, death is swallowed up in life. And I want to amplify that Remember we learned that because of Adam and Eve's act of rebellion against God And because of that sinful independence that we all share and have inherited We are marked by the five faces of death when, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ the way I have now explained it to you And when we acknowledge Him as our Savior and Lord Each one of those five marks of death are touched by life Let me explain and illustrate each one of them First of all, spiritual death was the fundamental problem They hid from God God was no longer a natural part of their life. Instead of spiritual death, we now have spiritual life. In one of the, probably one of the most best known verses in the Bible, John chapter 3, Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his begotten son that whoever believes in him, and we now understand what it means to believe in him, should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. But that by itself may create a wrong impression that eternal life is just some unending business that starts after we die. In the meantime, we are consigned to the same life that we now live, marked by those five faces of death. No, that's why Jesus goes on to also say, This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowledge for the Greeks was primarily intellectual, but knowledge in biblical words is experiential. It has an intellectual component, but it's experiential, and if it's knowledge of a person, it is experience garnered in the context of a relationship. You put all of that together, eternal life then is not just some passport to heaven. But eternal life is a quality of life that begins right now, at the heart of which is a life of increasing knowledge and intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. Now there's another dimension to this that's very important to remember. You see, once you come to Christ that way, once you have this eternal life, it doesn't mean we become perfect. That sinful streak that is within us still wants to assert, assert its independence. And yes, there will be uh, transgressions of God's commandments along the way. Christians don't become perfect people. But here's the difference. You see, Satan changes his tactic. He's very clear. Before you come to Christ, He's going to be busy telling you your own good works are good enough. You don't need saviors and whatnot. You are good enough. As soon as you become a follower of Jesus Christ, He'll turn His tactics around and say, You're no good. What makes you think you're good enough for God? Look at the way you live your life. It's important for us at that time to remember that this eternal life is more than just what we do. This eternal life, this relationship with Christ, is not just based on my commitment to Him, it is based on His commitment to me. To still love us even while He hates the sin in our lives. Those four parents, they've already changed many, many diapers that are odious. Some bad enough that you've got to almost do this. Sometimes those kids will throw up half-digested meals that smell even worse. What do parents do when that happens? They don't just push the child away. They run to the child to clean her or clean him up because they love that child. Because they're already in relationship with that child. But that doesn't mean they're going to let them wallow in their muck. That's exactly what God says to you and to me. When we commit ourselves to Jesus, He says, I enter into a covenant relationship with you. I hate the sin. I'll clean you up because I love you. And so this is a life that is, begins by faith and trust, and it is continued by faith and trust. All of that is eternal life. So that's the first thing that happens. Spiritual death is reversed into physical, spiritual life. Then the second thing we learned about was psychological death. The first thing Adam and Eve did was to cover themselves up. They were no longer comfortable with the way God had made them. They were no longer comfortable with the person closest to them seeing them just the way they are. We talked about it as psychological or internal alienation. How does how does new life come to affect this? Uh, I, call it, I call it soul life. When Christ comes into us, our souls become alive in a new way as well. Or to use modern day lingo, our self-image, personal strength, call it what you will, begins to change. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Well, one of the closest, most dramatic illustrations in my own life, and I've shared this with some of you a few years ago, was my father. My father committed his life to Christ in the way that I've just explained it to you three days before he died when he was 80 years old. For those 80 years, my father was a very taciturn man. He would sit through hours in the midst of people and say nothing. And when Sheila would ask him, come on, Dada, say something. He'd say, oh, I don't have anything to say. He didn't think he had anything valuable to say. Uh, he claimed he had no preferences and taste for food. He claimed he had no preferences for anything in life. He claimed he had no opinions on anything. I think he really believed that it didn't amount to much, whatever the reasons were. But those last three days before he died, when he committed his life to Christ, it was a totally different man. As Sham observed, she said, he was more alive when he was dying than he ever was when he was living. He would laugh. He would give orders. He would want to become part of every conversation that was going on. In fact, I overheard my mother say to one of her friends, How can I be sad when he has turned the hospital room into a party room? My father said, If you don't, that's what soul life is. Comes alive. And Jan- Janice Henderson, two weeks ago, gave us a beautiful illustration of soul life. When she talked about how Christ took the traumas of her past that led her into a seven-year battle with an eating disorder, years of therapy, and then coming into Christian community... And not just getting healed, but God taking that pain and making it redemptive. And listen, listen some of you who have suffered deeply in your past. Secular psychologists can take you as far as identifying that pain, getting you in touch with it and uh, uh, verbalizing it, Get dealing with repression and suppression, but then they are bankrupt at that point. They cannot pour meaning into your suffering. Only in Jesus does suffering find meaning because through Jesus suffering, humanity was redeemed. And he can take your suffering and turn it into redemptive influence. I'm no testimony to that. He has has spared me a lot of anguish. But Janice was a vivid testimony. Another thing, another aspect of soul life is significance. Janice also talked about how God was using her now to minister to other people and filling her with all kinds of energy, physical energy, emotional energy, love. You see, even though your commitment to Christ is an individual thing, as soon as you make it, you'll find there was a corporate dimension all along. You only make that decision as an individual, but as soon as you do, you realize that you become part of this thing called the church. And just like, and the, and the favorite analogy in the Bible for the church is the human body. Just like this arm and these feet and these eyes and whatnot, they're all different components that are organically connected together are connected to the head through the central nervous system and taking orders from the same place. Only then can an arm be an arm or an eye be an eye. Detach it and see what happens to it. In the same way, to be a Christian means to be organically connected to the rest of the body. And just as this hand serves the eye, if something suddenly hits the eye. In the same way, we are, this life within us, is intended to serve one another in the body. And the Bible tells us that when we believe in Christ and when we commit ourselves to Him, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. Each one of us is uniquely and individually wired by God along with our unique temperaments and passions and our uh, talents, our values. And they are combined together in such a way as to serve. And when we serve one another, we find significance. Last night, I was tired last night I finally went to bed. But... As I put my head down on my pillow, I said, Lord, I just thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the unbelievable privilege of just serving the church of Jesus Christ. Life would be empty without being some way being used by a holy God, along with others, for God to do something that brings glory to his name. And so psychological death is swallowed up in psychological soul life. Now the third thing we saw was social death. Adam and Eve started blaming one another So the division was not only between God and man The division be- was between one another Social death is overcome by relational harmony Through forgiveness and love Let me work this out First of all let me work it out logically And then just give you an example Logically it follows from the simple fact That if God didn't take the initiative And Jesus, God didn't become man and die on the cross for us You and I would still be under the wrath of God Not only that he didn't make us earn our salvation. It was given as a free gift for us to receive. And the logic part of it is very simple. It says, if I became a Christian through the sovereign initiative of God, and I was given this gift of eternal life and forgiveness without having to work for it, how can I make another human being earn their forgiveness from me? It's as simple as that. In fact, if you, want to, if you will withhold your forgiveness until people earn it, you are not yet a Christian, you know that? Because you don't understand what forgiveness is all about. And that's why Jesus said, if you will not forgive your brother or sister, I won't forgive you. That wasn't conditional. The point he was making was, the very nature of forgiveness is to understand that it is not earned. But once we understand it, we are then able to give it to others and walls begin to come down. This time let me give an illustration from my father-in-law's life. Uh, He also became a Christian later in life, not as late as my father, but later. He died when he was 68. He became a Christian a few years before that. And before he became a Christian, one of his uh, challenge areas for him was his temper and his anger. Also, he was a man who believed very strongly in principles of authority and respect. And so younger people should respect the older people. And if there was any question of any relational tensions between the younger generation and him, guess whose job it was to make things right. There, it's not his. Anyway, he became a Christian. And he was like C.S. Lewis says, one of the most thoroughly converted men I know because every part of his life was touched by God. And some of you have seen him, or You've been here long enough to have known that. Well, he, the last five years he served as an elder in this church. And one Sunday morning we were going to have communion. And he was going to serve communion as an elder. And so he called me Saturday night. Uh, he was involved in, in a relational tension issue with somebody much, much younger than him. And he called me and he said, uh, I need your, what, he, he said, what do you think about this? What should I do? Because I'm serving communion tomorrow. <laughs> I still remember the conversation. He said, Dad, do you want me to speak to you as a, as your son-in-law or as a fellow Christian? He said, well, you can speak to me as a fellow Christian. I said, well, then you should pick up the phone and take the initiative and heal that relationship. Well he did And then he told me the next day As soon as the other person heard that They broke down and confessed And you know that, that, he, that would not have happened Before he became a Christian folks That's how social death is swallowed up In relational harm And you heard last week Although it was acted out in the form of a skit It was a true story Of a man who started coming to the Alpha suppers here Two weeks into that, his wife started coming just because she saw a change in him. And a few weeks after that, that daughter wanted to come because she saw a change in the parents' relationship. That's that social death being swallowed up in social life. Now the fourth area we saw was vocational death. Where God said to Adam and Eve, from now on in the fulfillment of your primary work responsibilities, you are going to be marked by death. Adam, you will bring forth food from the ground. By the sweat of your brow, there will be thorns and thistles. In other words, work will be problematic. And Eve, you will not only bear children in pain, you will raise them in pain. And those parents can testify to that as well. What happened to vocational death? It's swallowed up in vocational life. And for this I need to go to probably the one man who's written better on this subject than anyone else. You've heard me recommend, ask Guinness' book, The Call, many, many times. And I'll keep doing it as long as I live. I've never heard anybody write like this on the subject of work and vocation. He talks in this book about a man by the name of Stud Turkle who did a series of interviews with people who work and he got them talking about their work and how they feel about their work here's here's how he summarized it oops, sorry he says, most people live somewhere between a grudging acceptance of their job and an active dislike of it but a recurring theme in their interviews is a yearning for a sense of meaning that comes when calling precedes and overarches work and career They work, but they want more than work. They want something to pour meaning into their work. But Guinness goes on to say, but there's a catch-22, at least in the way modern work is done. And the catch-22 of modern work is this. Neither work nor career can be fully satisfying without a deeper sense of calling. True, but calling itself is empty and indistinguishable from work unless there is somebody who calls. (laughs) So if there is no God who calls, if there is no Christ who calls, then calling just becomes a euphemism for work, and it's just as insignificant. And this is, where, this is where Christ comes in, and vocational death is swallowed up when a dehumanizing job can become a divine calling. And he gives a beautiful illustration much later on in the book about his great-great-great-great-grandmother who lived in Ireland at a time when men solved their problems with guns and duels. And this is what he writes. The young woman was 18 years old with two small children and vivacious, talented and beautiful. But she was also orphaned, penniless, completely alone, away from home and recently widowed because of a duel. Pain ran through every fiber of her being. Despair filled her horizon. Death beckoned her with an offer of peace as alluring as the still depths of the river that was in front of her. But as she was deep into that river contemplating suicide. She looked up and saw a young plowman setting to work in a field on the other bank of the river. He was about her age, 18 years old, but quite oblivious to her and to anything but his work. Meticulous, absorbed, skilled, he displayed such a pride in his work that the newly turned furrows looked as finely executed as the paint strokes on an artist's canvas. More than that, he was singing a hymn. While he was working This was a You can't imagine a job That's more drudgery like Than cutting furrows On a field Back up and down But this man Was worshipping While he was working He understood his job As a vocation The effect on this woman Hoskiness writes He says Despite herself Jane was fascinated Slowly she was drawn Into the plowman's pride Until admiration Turned into wonder And wonder into rebuke What was she doing collapsing into self-pity? How could she be so wrapped up in herself when two small children were dependent on her? Rebuked and braced, she got up, returned to Dublin and resumed life. Saved from suicide and reinvigorated for life by the sight of work well done while a man was worshipping. By the way, two weeks after that she became a Christian. There would be no Ask Guinness perhaps without that. And so Guinness finishes it this way. He says, calling transforms life so that even the commonplace and the menial are invested with the splendor of the ordinary. We're all familiar with the splendor of the extraordinary. The Olympics are just finished. Most of us will never be a Michael Johnson, will never be a Marion Jones or any one of those people who do those amazing feats year after year. In a field where 19, you're probably too old already. We won't even be a dare at Taurus who at the age of 32 after 7 years goes back into swimming and comes back with 5 medals. But the splendor of the ordinary, that's accessible to all of us. And Jesus can come and bring splendor into the ordinary. That's how vocational death is swallowed up. And then finally of course I said physical death. And no, committing your life to Christ is not going to make you escape death. You're still going to die. But from my experience, there are three ways in which the resurrection life of Christ looks backward and touches our death. First of all, just divine energy. One of his most well-known followers, the Apostle Paul, wrote in one of his letters, I labor to present every man perfect in Christ, struggling with all his energy that works in me so mightily. And I've shared with you on a couple of occasions, I think, that since the beginning of September, and right probably through till the end of October and maybe after that on for a few more months I, I feel like I'm juggling about five or six balls and all of them are made of glass none of them are made of rubber and, and, da- and yet daily it has been my joy at least for this one month more than I can ever remember explicitly calling upon God every morning to labor in His strength that works in me so mightily divine energy comes by, by that resurrection life healing If we had time, people could get up here in this congregation and tell you about times when the doctors had said no. And God touched them. Whether the elders were praying or somebody else was praying, they were healed. Uh, Emotional healing is, we've already talked about it, but this is physical healing I'm talking about. And then yes, one day even though we will die, it's still resurrection ground. When those caskets of Christians are lowered into the ground and the mud is heaped up on top of that again. One day Jesus is coming back. When he issues that call, like Lazarus come forth, (laughs) the grave will not be able to hold us in there anymore. That's why the funeral of a Christian is one thing the devil cannot counterfeit. He can counterfeit most many, many things. But he cannot counterfeit the joy at a Christian funeral. Not that there is no sorrow. But as Paul says, we do not sorrow like those who have no hope. Somebody said to me on the way out, I always knew that death ate into life. He said, this is the first time I've heard that life can eat back into death. That's Jesus' resurrection life. This is why I titled the sermon, Do You Want to Begin Your Life All Over Again? You can. Well, you've heard everything now. Two weeks ago, we learned that we were created in the image of God. We bore the moral image, the rational image, the volitional image, and the relational image of God, which equipped us as human beings to specifically demonstrate the royal image of God, being uh, rulers and subduers of this creation for the benefit of humanity and the glory of God. But we also learned that sin, the essence of which was this attitude of independence of God, has marked us with these five faces of death. Then last week we learned that trying to be good is pointless because that wasn't the purpose of the law. That the law, far from earning us salvation, was given to reveal the depth of sin, the power of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. At best, it controlled external behavior and sent us to the wrath of God. We learned that the answer to the problem was not law, but Jesus Christ a person. His life, His death, His resurrection. This morning, we learned what it was to believe in that Jesus and when that happens, what is this eternal life that He promises us, that touches each aspect of this life, but now the ball is squarely in your court, wherever you happen to be on this journey, a spiritual journey of yours, you have now come to a point of choice, in a few moments Marla Conrad is going to come and sing us a song that articulates that choice very beautifully in poetry and in music, but I want to set before you the critical importance of choosing to obey at least the next step. Rebecca Pippard in her book Out of the Salt Shaker tells a very interesting story. I've never read anything like it either before or after. Uh, she used to work uh, with Inner Varsity Fellowship on college campuses in North America. And a sharp young gal by the name of Sue came to her once and said, Rebecca, Larry has become a Christian. Larry was a friend of hers. And she said, I like, I like what I see in Larry. I like the difference Jesus is making in Larry's life. Larry has introduced me to a lot of friends and I've seen these Christians how they relate to one I like that too I've read about Jesus and the Gospels and I also like that but I just can't believe I have too many doubts still some of you may be like that you may have sat through these three messages and you said you know what this all makes a lot more sense than I ever thought this has given me a lot of food for thought but I'm not ready to make any commitment yet because it's all doubtful and Sue said to Rebecca, what should I do? And she said, please don't tell me to pray to Jesus and give my life to him, because that would be dishonest, I can't do that. What advice would you give to somebody who said that to you? Well, here's what Pippard said to her. She said, "She said, well, you've been reading the Gospels, read them again. And pray. If you only think the four walls are around, pray to the four walls and say, four walls, I'm going to read about Jesus. And if he will speak to me about anything, if, if anything I read hits me, And you give me an opportunity to obey that I'm going to do it And that's the advice that Pippur gave to her Sue said okay Okay I'll do it So, So she started reading One day and she was reading She was reading in the Sermon on the Mount And she read the one verse that Jesus said Nothing else hit her But that one hit her And that was the deal remember And the verse that hit her was If anybody asks you for your cloak Give him your shirt also She didn't know why that hit her She said but okay four walls if you're there Uh, if you give me an opportunity to do this today I'll do it that was the deal nothing more nothing less anyway she forgot all about it evening came and she had to go to study in the library and she was at this thesis desk working away and one young man walked into the library and he didn't have a thesis desk I don't know what happened but he didn't have one and he was furious he was angry he shouted at the librarian and he came to sue and he said I don't have a thesis desk I have to have one and I'm taking yours And all of a sudden Sue said, oh no. no." (laughs) She said, up till now I've always loved reading the Bible when Jesus went for the jugular of the Pharisees. Now he was going for mine and I didn't like it. And she said, I quickly tried to make deals with Jesus. Can't I do it some other way? I'll give you you tithes, I'll go to church, but do I have to give my thesis desk up? But she realized at the same time that that was the deal. (laughs) And so she said to the guy, you can have mine. now of course it was his turn to be shocked he said why would you do that why would you give it to me and when she explained it that was even less of an explanation for him because he said why on earth would Jesus ask you to do something so stupid and crazy as that and she said in that instant she said I knew everything I heard was true because she said to him because he wants you and me to have something far more than thesis desks and she said to Pippert in that instant I knew and all my doubts went away so all I'm setting before you is the next step of obedience, whatever it is that God has asking. And for some, it may be doing exactly what Sue did. Okay, okay, four walls, I'll read the Bible. And if something strikes me and you give me a chance to do it, I'll do it. Or well, will you make that much of a choice? For others of you who, who want a little bit more content, sign up for those Alpha Suppers. I mean, you've only heard three messages. I could have preached ten on each one of these ser- sermons. And somebody does it much better than I on those videos. And for nine Wednesday nights, you'll have a wonderful opportunity to have a good hot cooked meal. Uh, Listen to a stimulating video that amplifies many questions that perhaps I haven't had a chance to cover. You'll get a chance to sit down in small groups and discuss with people the implications of it. And maybe then you will hear Jesus say, take the next step. So as Marla comes and sings for us, would you just let this settle within you? And just ask Jesus all the four walls. behind those walls, surprise you. May you hear His voice speak clearly the next step that He wants you to take. And as you do, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened to know Him. And for those of you who have been on this journey a lot longer, who have made that first choice, may this increased understanding that you have of your faith Bless you with joy and with a desire to become a channel that many, many more can hear and understand in you so much more could go in Jesus' name.